I feel like I should sing or something like that with this music stand before me, but don't worry, you, you don't need to be afraid. Um, before we, uh, we spend some time looking at this passage and considering what God is saying to us through it, could you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, what we just sung a little while ago um, is what our lives are founded upon. Christ has risen from the dead. Uh, you have overcome death in Christ. You have dealt with our sin. You have forgiven us and brought us to yourself. And more than that, you have actually renewed us. Uh, you have brought us into the kind of life we were made for, but we were never able to accomplish on our own, only through you. And Lord, now you continue to speak to us in your word, um, speaking life into us, reforming us, renewing us. And so we pray this morning uh, that you would do exactly that, that as we just listen, that you would help us to hear and be changed and made more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the last couple of months, uh, you know that our church is kind of on a, in a project together, working on this project of seeking to grow in love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, pursue love. And we've been doing that, thinking both in terms of um, what we're doing when we're preaching, we've been thinking about this, and also if you've been part of a discipleship group. That's been what we've been kind of working on together in smaller groups. And a few weeks ago in, in my discipleship group, one person was saying, you know, the, the thing about this that's kind of challenging is that on one hand, everyone agrees love is important, love is significant, we want to grow in love, and yet love can feel kind of abstract, right? We can know generally that we should love, but sometimes it's hard to get really focused and specific. And I think that's really what our passage this week and next week, because we're going to be spending two weeks on it, does. It, it, it takes the general idea of love and gets really specific. And, and we see it from the outset. The very first few words Brent already mentioned is really what defines what we're considering today, what this passage is about. Let love be genuine. Uh, that word genuine literally is unhypocritical. Let it not be fake. Let it be the real deal. So I was, um, I came across this story uh, just this past week. I don't know if any of you ever read the blotter in the Hinsdalian. This is where you can find out like all of the terrible things that have happened in the last week. Like, you know, like someone's Gucci handbag was stolen from the front seat of an unlocked car or something, you know, like dreadful like that. Well, I came across the story. It was a different blotter. It was in Morton Grove. And, and it was sad. It, here's how it began. It said, a resident of the 5900 block of Monroe Street was reportedly being tricked into giving money to a person that had expressed interest in her online police were told on March 12. And then it continues on to tell the story that there's this woman who kind of was seeking companionship through a dating website, um, connected with someone, spoke frequently on the phone with him, and he expressed, you know, affection for her, interest in her. She felt listened to, cared for. She felt loved. And, and so when, you know, he said, oh, I've got this need, some taxes suddenly came up, of course, she was willing to give him to help him out. And again, and again, six different checks amounting to $20,000. And then again, because it was even worse, a $30,000 direct fund transfer, and then he was in the hospital needing another $30,000. She gave a total of $80,000 before the bank froze her funds, before she gave another $40,000 all because she felt loved 
but of course it wasn't love. It was, it was fake. It was him just using affection to kind of get what he wanted. Now, my guess is probably none of us have experienced something quite like that. I hope none of us have. But, but the idea of kind of a faked love, a, a feigned kindness, is something we do know something about. Uh, we have had situations, relationships, where we can tell, or at least we suspect, that a person is pretending to be our friend, pretending to like us, because they want to get something out of us, right? I remember talking to a friend of mine, a pastor in Hinsdale, who in his, one of his more cynical moments said, you should just recognize that you're going to have a hard time making friends outside of your church, because frankly, you are just not important enough. People only have a very limited number of hours where they're not working. And so that means their friendships are always viewed in terms of who do I need to know to get me to the next step? And you can't help them with networking. In other words, most of the time you will experience friendship and even forms of love are just faked for ulterior motives. Now, of course, that is overly cynical. That's not completely true. But we understand what he's saying. We I think we're even sometimes surprised if we find someone, a neighbor or someone else, who we realize, oh, you genuinely care about us. It's surprising because we're so accustomed to kind of a fake, shallow kind of love. But it's not just something we experience. If, if we're honest, it's something that's true of us. It's something that we express. I mean, you know just as well as I do that it can be so much easier to say, I'll be praying for you, than to actually pray for the person. Because we want to be seen a certain way more than we actually want to care for that person. Or, or to say, hey, whatever I can do to help, knowing that by saying that, it's not likely they're going to do anything, but we want, we want to be seen a certain way. If we're honest, faking, feigning love, feigning kindness is something that we know something about, not just in terms of having experienced it, but expressing it. And, and, and God says here, that's not the way of my people. If you are my people, if you have trusted in Jesus, you have been loved by me with a real love. And so I am calling you to love with a genuine, the real deal, true love that is different from the world around you. And that's what the whole passage is about. What does it look like to love with a genuine love? If you don't have the passage open, I invite you to kind of turn right back because we're just going to go through it kind of verse by verse. And I should let you know there's kind of two parts. There is the first part that it's about how we love within the church, how we love each other. And then the second part, which we'll be dealing with next week, is, is how we love the world around us. So what does it mean to love with a genuine love? Well, in, in just the, the first paragraph that we're focusing on this morning, we see Paul instructing us about the attitude of real love, about pursuing the energy for real love, and the actions of real love. The attitude, the energy... And the actions. And when we're talking about attitude, what, what Paul, I think, really exposes for us in the first couple of verses is that there is a, a deep difference between niceness and love. 
between niceness and love. Oftentimes, I think in our culture, niceness is what we equate with love. Oh, that was a really nice person. Oh, that, that one was nice. Oh, he was nice. But, but the reality is niceness oftentimes is, is skin deep. It's superficial. It's not the real deal. That's the phony love that Paul is calling us away from, to the real love. And, and the verses kind of imply three differences between what, what we think of as niceness and what real love is. First of all, Niceness seeks to be pleasant. Real love seeks what is truly good for the person. So right after, let love be genuine, it says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. It seeks what is truly good. If we think about it, when someone is nice, that pleasantness is really what we equate. It's, it's someone who acts towards us in a way that makes us feel happy. And, and we oftentimes want to be that way towards others. We want to make them happy. In fact, if we're honest, um, it's almost kind of selfish, isn't it, when we want other people to be happy in our presence? I mean, I'm happier if I'm with someone who's happy, and so if I can make them happy, that's great. And, and if they're kind of down and unhappy or even angry, that can be, that can be unpleasant. And so it's, it's not an uncommon thing, almost in our own self-interest, to, to try to be nice in such a way where we're just seeking to make them happy because that's, that's easier for us. We are making them happy or we want to be pleasant, even when that's not in their own best interest. So I don't watch American Idol that much, um, but, I, but I have seen clips, right? Some things always go viral, and it seems to me that when American Idol was big in its day, the things that went the most viral were some of those initial auditions. And I'm not talking about the ones where they're just amazingly awesome. I'm talking about the very worst train wrecks. You know, the ones where like, I kind of have to like, look through my fingers because it is so cringingly horrific that this person is just kind of exposing their terribleness in front of the whole world. And, and the question that I find myself asking when someone is singing just incredibly out of tune and trying to dance and it's just awful is, where are their friends? <laughs> I mean, you've got to think that someone in the last 10 years of their lives where they have talked about their dream heard them sing and go, oh my goodness, this guy cannot do anything. Where are Why didn't their friends just say, you know, brother, you are a wonderful person, but you are, are, are not a wonderful singer. But no one does. Why? Because friends oftentimes would prefer to be nice. They, they don't want to hurt feelings. They want to be pleasant because they don't want to bring the other person down, even when it would be a kindness to do so. And, and Paul says that's not what real love. Real love goes deeper than just being pleasant and seeking to make someone happy. Real love abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. That is, when real love loves another person, they prize what is best for that person, what they know God wants, which is best, even if in the moment that seems unpleasant for the other. You know, sometimes I hear parents saying, I just want whatever is happy for my child. You are settling for too little, Paul says. Real love wants what is good for your child. Real love means when your best friend, in a moment of vulnerability, your best friend who is married says, I have met this person, 
and she makes me really happy. And you know that he is wanting you to say, good. Real love means speaking truth and saying, I'm sorry, man, but that's, that's not okay. And you need to tell your wife. It's not pleasant, but real love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. Real love means when you have a friendship with someone who's not a believer and you find that there's this moment of openness and your heart is pounding and you know that speaking about Jesus might make things awkward from here on out, you do it anyway. Because you're not just about being pleasant. You really love the person and you cling to what is good and you abhor what is evil and you long for them to know Jesus. Real love, unlike niceness, seeks what is good. That's one contrast we hear. Secondly, whereas niceness is shallow, real love goes deep. I, I don't know if you've thought about this, but it seems to me that, that you know, nice friendships or nice relationships, there are kind of certain rules that everyone kind of understands. Like I say, hey, how are, hey, so-and-so, how are you? Everyone or most people know that's code for, right now I'm wanting to show you that I care about you, but I really don't want you to answer unless you say something really positive. And, and if I do say something like, if they're speaking and they, they do accidentally kind of do something threatening and say, oh, I'm having a really terrible time, and they start speaking about it, then at a certain point, if I say, hey, if there's, if there's anything I can do for you, that's code for, I'm willing to do you a minor favor. Like, you know, if you need to borrow a tool or if you need a ride, but like, don't ask me, for example, to watch your kids for a week. You know, we're, we're allowed just kind of just, just so far. And, and within relationships of niceness, we know that basically that relationship lasts as long as we're seeing each other. And the moment that we don't, well, you know, we've got other things. Nice relationships go shallow, but real love goes deep. What, is, what does he say? Love one another with brotherly affection. I have three brothers, and if we were told to love one another with brotherly affection when we were kids, that would, to me, just mean not get in any fights over the next 24 hours, at least maybe not use my fists. I mean, like, we were, you know, we were constantly battling. Brothers always do. But... But now, you know, that, that rings truer to me. I know that if my brother called at any time, any of my brothers, um, even the one I don't like, that's in case they're listening right now to the sermon, they can wonder which one of them it is. Um, no, truly, if, if, if any of my brothers called, I would, I would want to talk to them as soon as I could. And, and if there was a real need, whether it's financially costly or inconvenient, I, I would want to do something about it because they're my brothers. They... I have been with them, or they have been with me from the beginning of their lives, and, and this bond grows deep. And Paul says, one another, and one another he's talking about each other, us, the church, towards each other. That's how we are. We're called to love with, with depth, where, where we go beyond just the, hey, how are you doing, anything I can do for you, to really, really caring, because... However deep the bond of blood is, the bond of Christ is deeper. And however long of a track record we have with family, you and I are stuck with each other for eternity. right? We, we are always going to be brothers and sisters. This is a bond that we don't have any options over. We have been united with Christ, and we're called to love deeply. I mean, later on it expands this when it talks about rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, to be so connected to each other, that when other people suffer, we suffer with them. And when other people celebrate, we celebrate with them because the bond goes deep. Niceness is shallow, real love goes deep. 
And thirdly, whereas uh, niceness is oftentimes about being noticed, real love is about noticing. So if you think about it, one of the main reasons, if we're honest, that we like to be nice to other people is because we want to be seen as nice. We want in our conversations people to leave and go, oh, that was such a nice person. But, but notice how, how real love actually works. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, with real love, we are so oriented towards the opposite of that, not of being seen, but of seeing, of, of letting the other person take the, the spotlight. Real love means rather than always turning the conversation onto us, always being interested in the other person. Real love means when we notice the other person, we truly notice them and we're quick to admire and recognize the great things about them and, and, and to speak about it. Real love means that we're, when we're in a relationship with someone and we have conflict, we are much more interested in understanding the other person than in being understood. Because whereas niceness is about being noticed, real love is about noticing and honoring. Do you see the difference between the shallow niceness, the pseudo-love, and the real deal? Paul says, let your love be genuine. This is the way God has loved you. He has truly sought to care for you in a deep way, not in a shallow way. He has truly sought your good. He has raised you up in honor, and he calls you to be that way towards others. And I think it's worth pausing just for a moment and just asking ourselves this as we think about our relationships to each other. Are our relationships more characterized by the attitude of niceness or by the attitude of truly loving, where it goes deep, where we seek the awkward good for the other, where we honor the other. You know, one of the hazards of, of preaching a sermon like this, and I've realized when I was talking to people that people maybe assume that because I'm speaking about this, this means I've got this figured out. And if you're anything like me, right now you feel your inadequacy. Because we don't. This is clearly where scripture calls us, but it is beyond me. It is where I want to be. And, and so maybe you, like me, are seeing this as... A, an exhortation by God that we fall short of. And if that's where you are, then that is good to see and to acknowledge and to confess. But of course, it raises a question. What do we do if we realize we're called to love with a genuine love and we find ourselves lacking? And, and if anything, Paul kind of pushes us even further. And that gives us from not just the attitude of real love, but to the energy for real love. That, that's where he goes to the next verses. And and, and notice what he says. Perhaps this is the part that I've been most struck by in this passage. Do not be slothful in zeal. Now, what does that even mean? These are words that we don't really use that much, right? Uh, zeal is passion, right? It's, it's motivation. We're being commanded not to be slothful when it comes to passion. Do not become unmotivated, is another way of putting it. When it comes to loving others... Don't run out of steam. Now, what's interesting about that is that means we are being commanded to have motivation. Isn't that kind of weird? Like, I think we oftentimes think, I can choose what to do, 
but I can't really choose whether or not I have passion for something or motivation. But Paul actually says, no, that's not true. You can make choices where you can harness, you can steward, you can focus your energy, you can pursue being more motivated. And so he says, not just do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. You should pursue being fervent in spirit, or as the footnote translated probably more correctly, be fervent by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Which, which makes sense because we've been speaking again and again is how the reason that we can even talk about loving one another genuinely is not because we have some great love engine on our own within ourselves, but because if you are in Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is the Spirit that empowered Jesus to love us as He has loved. And that Spirit is now within us, giving us power to love. And Paul says, as you're being called to love with a genuine love, that means you need to be paying attention to your energy. You need to, to not become demotivated, but to become inflamed, passionate in the power of the Holy Spirit that you might love with the energy of love. That's our calling. How do we steward ourselves and our energy to give us the ability to keep loving as we're called to love? Well, well Paul gives us instructions here. First, he tells us to serve Jesus. Right? That's what happens right after, right? It says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And the Lord oftentimes in the New Testament is another way of speaking of Jesus. Serve Jesus. So this is the, the teaching that we've actually, I think, looked at a little bit before that we keep coming back to. The counterintuitive reality is if we want to love others more deeply, we need to stop looking at them. Eventually we want to look at them. Remember, love notices others, but it doesn't begin with that. Because here's the reality, and I'm just going to be blunt. Other people don't deserve you loving them the way that you're supposed to love. Other people, when we really understand what love is, what to love genuinely looks like, what it means to truly give of ourselves, other people don't deserve that kind of love from you. They don't deserve it because they're going to be unkind to you. They don't deserve it because sometimes they're going to be unappreciative. They can sometimes stab you in the back. If it's just about what they deserve, you are never going to love them the way that you are called to. But even if other people don't deserve it, Jesus does. Jesus has loved you with a perfect love. He has given himself completely for you. Daily, he is patient with you. And what he tells you is that when you love others, when you serve them faithfully, that brings him pleasure. And so finding the energy to love others begins by knowing that everything that you are doing in loving others is in service to Christ. Everything you do is for his pleasure. It delights him. The more that you can understand that he is the one that you are serving above all else, and he sees, even when everyone else doesn't, that gives you power, that gives you energy to be filled with the Spirit and to, to love. How do we harness our energy? First, it says, serve the Lord. And, and secondly, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. In other words, we are able to kind of grow in energy as we let the gospel reframe our story. 
We've spoken of before how anxiety, how fear oftentimes is what stands in the way of love. When we feel like we have nothing, when we feel like we are completely out of everything and we're hopeless, we have no love to give. And, and so often when we are looking at our normal daily lives, the way that we look at the moment is like this. Like all I see is just that moment and that's everything. And so if our, our toilet backs up, that is the end of the universe for me because that's all I can see right now, right? That's how we can feel. But, but the gospel kind of does this. And, and it redefines what our story is so that it's no longer as anxiety producing because it says, here is your future. Your future is this beautiful, glorious, awesome reality that you know is true. And when we see that, that suddenly redefines the present as just a step. A step that's not always easy, but a step that moves us towards that beautiful future. And that changes the way that we feel. I don't know how many of you are baseball fans, but last night there was a game in the World Series, and there was one point where one team, well, I'll name them the Dodgers, the bad guys, um, were up by four runs. And then the Red Sox come back, and it's this major momentum shift, and it's four, and then they start, and then you can just start seeing it in the body language of the Dodgers. They feel like they've already lost this game. And the Red Sox can feel because they're coming back that they've won, and that very hope that they have versus despair that the other team has changes the way they do everything because they know that every ounce of strength they're giving, they're giving towards the success that's before them. <laughs> Who said that Presbyterian churches didn't have that kind of thing? <laughs> the point is, when we are able to see things as it truly is, that gives us an energy, a joy in the present. Knowing the joy of the future gives the meaning to the suffering moment of the present. And that gives us power to love. We... we we can agonize sometimes in the knowledge that we are in a relationship where there is frustration and misunderstanding and it just feels hopeless. But here's the reality. In the end, you guys are going to be loving each other perfectly. And it will be beautiful. And this is just one step in that story that's going to have a happily ever after. We can feel so frustrated in our work because sometimes things aren't working the way they are, but there will be a day and we can rejoice even now in the reality that our work will not be futile, but it will be good and endlessly fulfilling. We, we suffer right now, but in a way that I don't even fully understand, there will be a reality when we see God face to face that makes whatever suffering we have be kind of swallowed up by the deeper joy. And the more that we can rejoice in that now and let that be our story, the more that we have the energy to love freely, knowing that we come not from a place of scarcity, but abundance. Let the gospel redefine your story. And the third thing that we see here for how we grow in energy is, is simply in prayer. So what does he say? It says, you know, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And, and this only makes sense. If, if genuine love is about obeying the Father by serving the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's God in every aspect of it, then, of course, if we are wanting to love well, we need to be praying frequently. 
Because in every aspect of it, it doesn't come from within, but it comes from God. You know, the simplest prayer that we can pray again and again in the moments where we're in conflict and we realize we're responding wrongly, or in the moment that we're grudging towards someone else, or in the moment that we find ourselves being really judgmental, Lord, please just help me to love. Lord, just please help me to love. Prayer doesn't have to be complicated, but be constant in prayer because as we are praying, God gives us this energy, this passion to love that is not our own. You are called not only to have an attitude of love, but even before that, to pursue a passion. But by serving Christ, by seeing things in the perspective of the gospel, by praying that you might have the energy to love with genuine, real, unhypocritical love. So we see the attitude of love, we see the energy of real love, and then finally we see actions for real love. And, and this is in some ways what exposes us, right? We can sometimes hide to ourselves how unloving we are and think that we are kinder than we actually are, but oftentimes it's when we actually act that we see our selfishness. And here Paul just gives us two simple instructions for how we are to act lovingly. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul says, this is what real love looks like. You know what's interesting to me about these two commands? Both of them push back hard against privacy. So think about the way that we view finances. We, we view, hey, I've earned my money. It's no one else's business. No one should know even how much I have. And no one can decide for me what I do with it. I get to do what I want. It's my private thing. And, and what we see here is contribute to the needs of the saints. The saints just means fellow believers. And contribute just can be translated just easily share. Share. Because God says, that's actually not yours. It's all mine. I've entrusted each of you with resources, and the resources I've entrusted you with are for the sake of the whole body. It's not private. Share. If there's someone who needs a place to stay and you have an extra room, share. If there's someone who's in financial need and you've been blessed with resources, share. If there's someone who doesn't know something or needs some help figuring things out and you've been gifted with that ability to understand those things, share. This is not a private enterprise. And similarly, when it says to seek to show hospitality, or literally pursue hospitality, make it a priority. So, so some of you know that the last couple of years, uh, the reason I wasn't here this last Sunday was I was away in Orlando teaching a class on, on worship to a seminary there. And what's interesting is, to me is two years in a row, as one of the things we've talked about is, is kind of how much culture shapes the way we worship. I've had people from other cultures, one from Korea, one from Chile, say the one thing that they notice more than anything else about American churches is how private they are. They come together on Sunday morning, they, they say some brief, polite comments to each other, and then they all disperse as if they don't really care that deeply for each other. Whereas other cultures, you know, like they would say, you know, like we'll have meals together and people will just naturally go over each other's houses because that's what we're supposed to be. We're family, right? But we so preserve our privacy that we only let people come on our very carefully planned terms. But that's not what we're commanded to do. Seek to show hospitality. That's not entertaining where everything is managed. That's inviting people into the mess. 
It's inviting people into our lives even when things aren't quite right. It's inviting people into our homes even when it's messy. It's saying you are in, not outside. You belong. I wonder what it would look like, and we'll think about this more even next week, what would it look like if we were a church that was characterized by deep, radical hospitality? where we do things that are so different from the world around us, where the barriers that we use in our house to keep everyone else suddenly becomes permeable and we welcome people in, even when it's uncomfortable. Because privacy is not a biblical virtue. Love is. Genuine love. Because the reality is, that's how family operates. If you have a family member in need, they need money for medicine, you will give it because, not just because you're doing them a favor, but because they're family. You share. And if you have a family member drop by, you're not going to say, I'm sorry, now's a bad time. Unless it really is. Obviously, we all have boundaries, but generally people are welcome at any time if they're family. And that's what we are to each other. I imagine you, like me, have been... um, maybe even grieving a little bit this week, just thinking about even yesterday, the, uh, the bombing in the synagogue, um, a shooting purely based on race, the, 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 the pipe bombs that are being mailed, just so much hatred. And, and we, we have this opportunity Because when we look at the world, we say, what can I do? And and we can pray, and we are praying, and we should pray. And we should seek to serve the world around us. But you know one thing that we can do? We can love. We have, in Christ, been given the capacity to love each other. That's where it begins. Not just to love people who are like us. Not just to welcome people in that are easy to understand. Not just to be nice. But to really do the hard work of loving to love in a way that's filled by the Spirit. That is, that is what God calls us. He says, love one another with a genuine love because that is how I have loved you. That is the power that I give you in the Spirit. So love. So I invite us just for a couple of minutes. As, as Brent said, sometimes when we think about these things and our, our failings are exposed and we realize we've not just wronged others, we've wronged God. The right response is to begin with confession and acknowledging it, knowing that we have a forgiving God. And also it's right to ask God for help. Pray constantly. So I invite you to spend a couple minutes with me, just kind of responding to God in silence and prayer as we seek to become that loving community that God has created us to be. Would you please join with me in silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment.
Lord God, your word exposes us. It reveals to us how we oftentimes value a number, so many things above loving you and others. How we hold tight to our security, to our comfort. We let our, our lives be driven by fear instead of opening our arms and hearts wide in love towards others. And Lord, we confess to you because we realize that our failure to love others is first and foremost a failure to love you. We have wronged you that we have sinned against you. Lord, we grieve for our sinfulness. We entrust ourselves to your forgiveness. And we ask for your renewal. Lord, when I think of the work you are doing in this church, I see your spirit at work already creating in us this, this love, and we pray that you would continue to do that, that you would make us more and more like Jesus, loving each other with a genuine love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Romans 8. God says to you, you did not receive, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Brothers and sisters, through the death of Christ, your sins are forgiven, and by the Holy Spirit, you are made children of God. Thanks be to God.